Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Steve Nichols, president of Reformation Bible College. We follow timeless paths of wisdom and truth, engaging the classic texts of history, literature, and theology. We care about training thoughtful and articulate Christian men and women, and we believe that a distinctly classical education lays the groundwork to thrive in society for God's glory. I'm excited to announce to you the launch of our online Foundation Year program, and it could not come at a better time. With this certificate in theology, you can build a firm foundation to take with you into whatever vocation you end up pursuing. In this carefully designed online classroom experience, you will engage with professors and classmates in real time, and you can do this from wherever you are. Apply today to invest in an affordable education that will serve you for a lifetime. Please visit us at reformationbiblecollege.org slash online. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Searcy Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Welcome. As Andrea said, welcome to the second ever Ask Andrew Live podcast. And I got to say, this is, for me, this is really fun. Um, It's a great way to sort of settle in for the evening. But I want to go right to the question. So here's here's how it'll work tonight. I'm going to give a very quick review of some of the high-level thoughts that I had yesterday about how, to, how I go about answering questions. And then I've got a specific question that I'm going to address. I'll take 15 minutes on that question. And then like yesterday, Andrea then will follow up with five questions. Okay, so, so very quickly, last night I was asked a question that, that I responded to by saying, well, first let me draw back and, and discuss with you how I go about thinking about things, at least in my best frame of mind, like what I'm conscious of what's directing my thinking is what I'm trying to be guided by. And I said there were about six or seven things that I try to keep in balance, but mainly you know, six or seven things. Okay, And the first one, the, 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 the supreme one, is the Holy Trinity himself, God himself. I believe that in the Holy of Holies, 
is the seat of wisdom, and that is the throne room of the temple of God where God himself abides, and flowing out of that is all the grace in the world, and all the, all the um, needs that we have are met by that. And so I try to start with the Holy Trinity in my thinking. Um, I'm idealizing, but that's what I try to, maybe it'd be better to say I try to reach to the Holy Trinity in my thinking. And then secondly, the incarnate word, the incarnate logos, Christ, the God-man, God becoming man, the word made flesh. This, I believe, is the very form of truth. And I think that, I think that that sheds so much light on absolutely everything. And so I try to think in terms of the incarnate logos. And then a combination of words here, nature and purpose. I believe that everything has a nature, and I believe that everything has a purpose. And I believe that if you don't honor the nature and purpose of the thing, then you are dishonoring the thing. The person, the plant, the tree, the animal, everything should be regarded and treated according to its nature and according to its purpose. And everything has its own purpose. Now, everything has the same purpose. Everything is for the glory of God. Everything. But I don't glorify God in exactly the same way you do, if you see what I mean. In similar ways, I hope, but not in exactly the same way. So we all are called on to glorify God, and then we each need to figure out our distinct way to glorify God. That's our purpose, and that's our nature. Next, I talked about relations, and I believe relations need to be governed by propriety. Okay, relations and propriety. And yesterday's question was about curriculum and the structure of thought and, and how does everything fit together. And given that we have this divided, fragmented curriculum, how do we get our kids to think with whole minds? And my contention was they have to know the nature of what we call a subject nowadays, which I think is unfortunate, but they need to know the nature of the thing they're studying and its relationship to everything else. Well, you can't know to everything else, but to the other things around it, okay? Now, what I didn't say yesterday, or I did at the end briefly, and I'm gonna really emphasize it today, partly because of the question and partly because it's so important to my thinking, I'm gonna give you, well, I guess I'm gonna give you uh, three more words, but they're all connected. And that word, the governing word is harmony. Okay, I said harmony yesterday. A secondary word I want to give you is modulation. I love modulation because I only finally became conscious of the idea in the last month or two reading St. Augustine's treatise on music, okay? And so harmony and modulation go together because harmony is bringing everything into an appropriate relationship where everything in that relationship is rightly related to everything else, right? So a band uh, is in harmony when all of the all of the chords are in the right relation to each other, right? Now, modulation is also a musical term. What's the difference? Modulation is harmony moving through time. Now, think about that in community, and you think, wow, it's hard to get harmony, isn't it? It's hard to get harmony. How much harder is it to modulate how to keep that harmony through time? My view is that's wisdom. That is what wisdom is, fundamentally. That's what wisdom does, if not. It is that it modulates harmony through time. Okay, and then that leads me to the last word I'm going to give you before I get to tonight's question, and that's analogy. Analogy. Now, to have harmony, you can't cut everything up, right? You're not going to have harmony if you take an orchestra and you take each instrument and you 
move one into one building and one into another and you separate them and then and then you know let one play a, a single note and then study that note and so on i'm not saying that's not valuable that's a very valuable exercise but that's analysis okay that's that analysis is, is a greek word that literally means to cut up to cut apart an analogos analogy is another greek word and it doesn't mean put together exactly what it actually means is something more like proportion it's it's a mathematical term one to two is as two is to four right that's a proportion so so if you double a fraction one half is two fourths but they're both a half right that's a proportion in greek that's an analogy but in all of existence there's analogies okay now hold on to that really crucial concept harmony analogy etc and now i'm going to ask i'm going to read the next question that i've got and i and i'm going to try to show you i'm just going to answer the question okay but i think as i answer the question you'll see how things like analogy harmony relations propriety nature purpose the incarnate word and the holy trinity are guiding my thoughts let's say but here's the question can you please clarify what you mean when we ask the should question okay great great question what do you mean when we ask the should question okay now she then goes on to give a really good example in fact this this is no insult to anybody else but this is one of the best ways this question's ever been asked me i'll give you this example she says to show you where my confusion lies we have just finished reading treasure island and i asked my children should Jim have taken the belongings of Flint, including the treasure map? Then she goes on, describing what happens. And maybe some of you can relate to this. Maybe you've asked your kids a should question out of a fable even or something. And suddenly this happens. She says, for a few minutes, we are discussing Jim and the actual story. But very quickly, we move into discussing ethical questions regarding stealing. Now, both sets of questions have their place. That's a really, really important point she makes. Both sets of questions have their place. I'm just going to interrupt myself in this question for a moment to ask this question. Which has a more important place? Right Now, just hold that. Just because one thing is more important than another doesn't mean you shouldn't also do the other thing. Sometimes, one thing is more important than another, but depends on the other thing. So you need to do the other thing because it's less important than the first thing. But both sets of questions have their place, okay? Meaning ethical questions and the should question about a character. And then she goes on. But I love this way of putting it. When discussing literature for literature's sake, should we avoid moving? out of the story into ethical dilemmas? Goodness, that's a good way to ask this question. When do we remain in the story? And when do we move out of the story when asking the should question? Okay, when do we do that? Now, I have to make a couple of comments about this perfect way of asking this question. The first is, it shows, doesn't it? The story shows, and, and, and if you've experienced the same thing, it shows how incredibly, I've, I've seen inveterately, which I love, inveterately ethical we are. We are always moral people. 
we can't stop being moral people. You can't. You can. You can silence your ethical um, convictions or or the ethical impulse. You can silence your conscience. Of course, you can. In fact, the Bible tells us we need to train the conscience. Right in Hebrews five, it says we need to train the conscience. But we're always moral beings. We always have. Let's put it this way. We all, just as we have eyes to see, okay, just we have ears to hear, so we always have an organ of perception that sees morality. Now, just as our eyes can go blurry, we don't always see morality clearly, but we always see morality. We always have moral feelings, okay? Now, but, but, she, she says, when discussing literature for literature's sake, and this shows something else that's crucial about us. And that is, we are also always artistic, creative beings. We're born creative. We are images, right? We talked about this yesterday, that we are images. And because we are images, we love images. We, we are created by a creator in the image of the creator, so we love images. This is why it's so important for Christians to read fiction. It's so important to learn how to communicate in fiction, how to tell stories in the form of fiction. We are, we are always artistic beings. Now, notice then that phrasing, discussing literature for literature's sake. Now, that's a kind of a tricky way to put it. I'm wondering if she's not trying to trap me here, because I'm going to assume by this that she doesn't mean literature for literature's sake Ultimately, in other words, I'm reading, I'm studying literature as though it exists all by itself and is accountable to nothing else, right? I'm just, it's, it's a, it, because then it's God, right? I, I can't, ultimately, I can't do literature for literature's sake. However, there's a certain qualified way in which during a literature class, the purpose and nature of the literature class is to study literature, not ethics, Right? And, and I, that's how I take the question. So then the problem becomes, well, in my literature class, suddenly we're talking about ethics. Is that okay? Well, sometimes <laughs> this, is where, this is where you have to make a judgment. You have to determine ahead of time and then modulate during the lesson what your purpose is. Is the purpose of your lesson to teach them something about literature? Or is the purpose of your lesson to teach them something about ethics or to maybe even just give them an ethical experience? Now, let me say this. The two are inseparable. You can't teach literature without it having some ethical impact, okay? Because we are always ethical beings. But let's take literature for a moment. Let's even narrow literature to a story, to Treasure Island, and say, here, let's teach Treasure Island for Treasure Island's sake. Okay, now what that means is in this limited context, I'm not trying to teach my child how to behave. I'm not trying to teach my child don't steal. I'm not trying to teach my child some ethical lesson. I'm trying to teach him literature. I'm trying to teach him, in fact, Treasure Island. Okay, well, why would you do that? Well, because you were told to, because it's literature class. But why did somebody come up with literature, right? That's my question. What's the essence of literature? What's the nature of literature? And I want to suggest a few things 
that that can guide us as we think about reading stories by ourselves or with people that then can help us use the should question without it becoming necessarily an ethical question. Okay. Now, the first point I want to make, even before I go into this, is about the should question. It's not necessarily an ethical question. You understand that, right? Sometimes the should question is just practical, right? Should should uh, should, should in, in kidnaps should should what's his name Hawkins should he hide in the barrel? That's not an ethical question per se. It's a survival question. Is he is he going to live if he does that? Right? Will it work? Right? So so there's the the practical. In fact, Bethany commented, I was asked the should question. In effect, I'm being asked the should question in this question, sort of. And, and the idea there is practical, right? So there's just practical should questions. There's also artistic should questions. Should the, should the author have done that to that character? Should Stevenson have created this particular ethical dilemma for Jim? Should, should Stevenson have phrased the question differently, right? So there's artistic should questions too. So think of it that way. There's, there's practical should questions. There's artistic should questions. There's moral should questions. And you can expand beyond that. The point I want to mainly get at there, though, is don't think of the should question as necessarily a big moral question. In fact, if you do, your kids will lose interest most of the time because then they'll feel like you're moralizing and beating them. But what you but you do want to do is focus the should question as concretely as as you can. And that's why I like the way it was put in this question. Should Jim have taken the belongings of Flint? Okay, thank you. Um, should 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 Jim have taken the, the belongings of Flint? Okay, that's a that's a very specific question. It might just be practical. It might even conceivably be artistic or it might be moral, okay? So the should question that's important to understand has all those different uses to it, all those different potential applications. Now, I still wanna get at this basic question though of what's a story? And here's what I wanna to propose to you. A story is something humans make as a work of art, right? It's not the same as music, it's not the same as painting, it's not the same as dancing, it's verbal, and it's about characters who are made up, maybe based on real, but basic characters who are made up, and they do actions through time, okay? That's important because humans, when we do art, aren't capable of doing anything but taking something from within us and putting it into the art. And therefore, necessarily what a story involves, I won't say it is, but it involves, let's call it projections, projections of human desires and human fears. And in that sense, a story is an image. As an image, it has form and it has content, right? And so that's, oh, and so, and by the way, literature is made up of forms just as much as it's made up of the content. So one of the, the should, a lot of should questions are formal should questions. Should this have happened at this part of the story or later on? Now you're teaching writing, aren't you? Okay, so what, I, what I'm getting at then is that what children need to develop when they're studying literature is skills involved in studying literature, right? And what those basically come down to, the fundamental skills of literature, are interpretation. And that's grammar. In the, in the broad, long tradition, in, the, in, the, in the, the trivium, when we talk about the trivium and the, and the, the liberal arts, Grammar is fundamentally the art of interpreting a text, all right? 
Now, therefore, what you want to teach a child how to do is interpret a text, how to interpret a story, how to interpret a poem, and so on. My contention then is that the should question actually is the most natural and easiest way to lead into an interpretation. Here's why. A story is based on a character that the the artist, the storyteller wants to torture. And his goal is to put that character into a horrible situation that that character needs to work his way out of or figure his way out of. Most stories have a rising action that leads to a climax. And at the climax, you come to the point where a single fundamental decision needs to be made, and it revolves around a should question. Always. For that reason, he'll, he'll be asking himself, what should I do? Very often with debates within himself or with other people. For that reason, when you ask that should question, you've just plunged into the very heart and soul of the story, which enables you to interpret it. Listen carefully to this next sentence. It enables you to interpret it by playing with your puppy instead of cutting it into pieces and laying it on the table. Okay, you are you are engaged in a living interpretation of the story. Now I've got one minute left, so I should so I should kind of summarize um, maybe how that happens. But basically, what you're doing is by asking that should question, you're getting into the to the significance. I don't want to say meaning exactly, but you're getting into the significance of the story in a way that you can't any other way. Now. Maybe tomorrow I'll continue on this one, uh, or, or maybe even in the next minute. But when you, when you start interpreting the story, over time, gradually, the student will gradually start to interpret at various levels. And I'll just throw this out right now, that it's the literary level, and it's the, the allegorical or analogical level. And it's the moral level, and it's the anagogical level. Now, don't worry about what those mean right now if you're not familiar. But I'm seeing Kristen's comment that the child thinks that their perspective matters, but I'm out of time, so you're stuck with kids who are self-obsessed. Nothing I can do to help you. Just kidding. I mean, we can try to address that, but it's, it's a big issue. But I'm out of time. Yeah, you have to avoid moralizing from your, okay, here's what you have to do. You have to avoid moralizing from your perspective where you've determined the moral ahead of time and you're going to impose it on the child. That's self-centered for you, okay? You also have to avoid um, impressionism from the child's perspective. This is about me, right? Narcissism, let's put it that way. You have to avoid the narcissism of the child who doesn't even want to look at the story, He wants to look at his reflection in the story, right? He wants to play Narcissus. Okay, now there, I just drew an analogy out of a story. I moralized it, but hang on. You mustn't moralize and you mustn't let them narcissize, whatever the heck the word is for that. Okay, I'm going to stop now because my time's all up. And then I gave you that little bonus um, punishment for in response to Kristen. But I want you to know that what you're talking about is legitimate and I'm not trying to dodge it. It's something that will, as we do this, it'll come up all the time. It's hard to get them out of their own perspective. Okay, so none of us are ever the only one struggling with anything, ever. Never, ever allow yourself to think, I'm the only one struggling with this. 
That has never happened since they left the garden. All right. Now, Andrea, over to you with the, the follow-up questions. Oh, yeah. Okay. Probably there's somebody saying, why are the Russian dolls up? But go ahead, Andrea. Right. There's a lot of questions tonight, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, and not making this easy. So, <laughs> yeah, but I that's have... your problem. All I have to do is answer five of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's stop answering those then. Oh, sorry. I guess I'm a narcissist. I'm a narcissist moralist. Man, what do you do with someone like that? Okay, so I'm going to give you a question. That's what I'm going to do with that. Ooh. My question for you right now is, I want to have good discussions with my family. How do I engage my reluctant students in conversation or discussion? Yeah. Huh. Um, you have to figure out why they're being reluctant. And that has a lot to do with age. If they're 12, 13, 14 years old, they're reluctant because they're 12, 13, 14 years old kids who are reluctant. And in that case, you kind of have to wait. You have to stay at it. You have to teach them the disciplines, but you kind of have to wait. But more practically, while you're waiting, no matter what age there are, there's certain things you need to do. And, and there's, there's personality that comes into this. So you have to qualify everything I'm about to say with, with there's personality that comes into this. But as I said, reading is an interpretive skill. A lot of kids don't want to talk about what they're reading because they're not confident. They don't feel like, A, their opinion matters, and B, even if it does matter, they don't know how to form one, right? They don't know what the questions are in order to interpret. So one of the best ways to get them confidently talking is to give them inquiry questions, like, if I may, the should question. I think even easier, though, is the comparison question. If you want to get your kids thinking about something, compare it to something else. This is how we learn. And Your minute's up. See how disciplined I am? All right. And here's another question. What are the relationships between teaching virtue, wisdom, courage, temperance, justice, teaching skills, reading, comprehension, historical analysis, public speaking, and training habits, paying close attention, receiving feedback oh, wow. humbly, following any particular process of decorum? So the wow. three there were teaching virtue, teaching skills, and training habits. Yeah. Well, what I love about it is they're analogous to each other. So you can look at those Russian dolls now, right? Those three things are not three categorically different things. One is contained in the other. And I would say at the very bottom is something even more basic, which is an action. An action that is repeated over and over again, that becomes a habit. A habit that is repeated over and over again, if it's good, that becomes a virtue. Okay. But what, what, were the, what was the third thing that you talked about? Virtues and habits. Uh Virtues, skills, habits. Skills, okay. So let me back up and say an action becomes a habit. Habits become skills if they're good, right? If they're directed towards something. Skills become arts. Mm -hmm. If you have a bunch of skills that relate to the same realm of activity, same objective, they become arts. And arts, I believe, arts become virtues when they transcend the artisticness, the aestheticness, and enter into the more thoroughly human and, and even moral. So, so there's that ladder. You have to start with the skill and work your way up. Okay. Thank you. 
pleasure. Next question. And this one is actually referring to last night. Okay. Um, So are you giving us a form or a universal when you say that you value wisdom of originality and that you love discovering creativity? How are we to approach this problem of making things fit together by valuing wisdom over originality and loving discovery and creativity? Proverbs 1 goes into that, I think. Um, wisdom, Wisdom is the means of harmony, of fitting. Wisdom is the ability to fit things together. Wisdom loves originality in its place, right? Wisdom, wisdom loves discovery. The Proverbs are clear on this. That in fact, wisdom, here's how much wisdom loves discovery. It demands that you discover it. It hides. It hides itself in riddles, according to Proverbs. It hides itself in stories. It hides itself in Proverbs. You gotta find it if you're gonna get wisdom. And so it loves discovery because by seeking for it, you learn how to seek for it, and then you learn how to show others how to seek for it. So um, wisdom is the means of bringing harmony to discovery and, and, and the other um, um, in, you know, invention and originality. And originality, frankly, is, is really only possible to the person who has absorbed into his soul pretty well everything that's been discovered in a given area. Otherwise, how could he be original? He'd only say things that other people already said. Done. Thank you. Um, next. Okay. I've been listening to Robbie Jane uh, talk oh, about yeah. puzzles, proofs, and play and math to cultivate wonder. How would a person learn to teach math that way who didn't receive that sort of math education? Well, depends on the age. If, if you're teaching a high school student and you didn't receive a very solid education, I would highly recommend finding Ravi Jane and asking him to teach, to, to do it. Um, however, because you are interested, you are, be, you are more ready to learn than your child, probably. But with children, I believe that there's a fundamental dichotomy that we make that hurts children. On the one hand, it's all this memory work and discipline and on the other hand, it's all this flowing around on the water and you know blowing in the wind. And I, that's where I go into the Trinity again. We need discipline. We need structure. We need repetition. We need memory. We also need discovery in the quest. And the, the, the means to that is mimetic teaching. What you do is you make them aware of what they already know in detail, and you help them get comfortable in what they already know. And then you bring them to the edge of what they know. And there's something they don't know, but not too much. One step, one gap beyond what they already know is a new world that you want them to conquer. And that's what wonder is. And by the way, you've got to understand this about wonder. Wonder is a form of fear. And, if, and it's a delightful form of fear, but it's a form of fear. And, it's, and it only happens when you approach something you don't know. That's why we say, I wonder what would happen if. And that's how you do it is you you gather up what they already know, you get them conscious of it, and then you bring them to the edge of the new thing. But don't let that new thing be too far away. Don't let the gap be too big. Make it attainable and then make sure that they gain confidence in you as a teacher to bring them across that, that gap that you brought them to. Thank you. Man, I had three extra seconds. No. I got a clause in there. 
I kept saying, no, you kept going. Oh, you did? Yeah. I went over? Yes. Uh, the camera didn't, I didn't see you killing me. Okay. Sorry. I know. So here we've got, got something up on my bow tie. Maybe I should answer the question. That's what I was going to say. There's a lot of questions tonight, but I, I really think we have to make this last one the, the best one. Where's your bow tie from? Right. Okay, my bow tie. If you if you look at if you look at the design on this bow tie, let me see. I don't know how well you can see it right now. How many of you are familiar? Well, you're all familiar with. In Scotland, they have they have the uh, kilts, right? And and each kilt represents the tribe, supposedly. This, yeah, tartans. This is an African pattern that where they do the same thing. This this is a a, a given. A tribe from Uganda. Some of you know my daughter Katerina lived in Uganda until about a month ago. Um, oh, right, that would help at this point, wouldn't it? Huh. Never even did get to the to the point of the Russian dolls, except that they're meant to be an image of analogy. Okay, so so can you see it very well? So that's that's it. That's the tribe from Uganda. But the story behind this is that there were a, a group of girls. I don't know when this happened, maybe 15 years ago. A group of girls were kidnapped and taken out into the, into the country, as I understand it. And they were basically, they were made sex slaves. And after some time, they were rescued. And I, I never did find out how long, but they, they were rescued from that and brought back to, I believe, the city of Jinja. It might have been the city of Kampala. Um, the main cities in Uganda are Jinja, Kampala. Kampala is the main city, and then Entebbe. I don't think so. I think Boko Haram is farther in the west. I don't think this was a Muslim uh, group. I think it was just a, um, it was just a group of people who wanted to in Uganda, which is Eastern Africa, right where Sudan, South Sudan borders on Uganda, and then Rwanda does on the west. Um, well, they happened so much is the trouble. They might have been taken from a school, but. But there was a group that happens all the time with Boko Haram. But in this case, I don't think I don't I don't know exactly how they were taken, but they were taken. And I think there were about 30 of them. That's just a terrifying story. It's an unbearable story. But they were rescued. Glory to God. Um, and, and they were brought back into, I think, Jinja, which is kind of a tourist tourist town. And. This is what they do now. They, they, um, the rescuers gave them a job um, making bow ties. And so um, when I saw this, frankly, I saw it in a tourist trap store. And uh, um, I thought, man, yeah. First of all, I love it. It's a beautiful bow tie. And second of all, how can you not want to help those, the, the people after a situation like that? And it's kind of cool because I can't remember the airport I was in, but I think I was walking and I'm pretty sure it was either Peter Vanderbreek or Andrew Pudua. I was walking through an airport. I think it maybe was Atlanta. And, um, and I'm walking along and, and there's this, there's this um, empty space and a hallway, but there are a couple, a couple desks. I forget what they're called. And um, there was a, there was a, a, a young African-American is what I would have called him if, if you know, my initial thought, African-American. And he sees my bow tie from about 15 feet away and he steps out behind. He's, hey, that, that, that. And he tells me exactly where the pattern's from. And I thought that was such a cool moment. So he wasn't an African-American. He was just an African. 
And we had this wonderful conversation about his uh, about his heritage and all this. And it didn't last terribly long, but it was a wonderful connection. And so this bow tie, this bow tie means the world to me. Um, that's why even though even though it's uh, um, it's actually kind of a it's a strap, a Velcro bow tie. It's the only it's the only Velcro bow tie I'll wear because half the joy of wearing a bow tie is that you tie it and you don't get a perfect knot. Because you know who wants to make a perfect knot? Anybody can do that. So you um, so you're supposed to just make a. You should have a flawed bow tie, in other words, normally. But this one is perfect. So something something about it is really wonderful. So that's why I love this bow tie, and we can see it and we can pray for them absolutely. And and if you want to know a little bit more about maybe what life is like in Uganda. There's the New Yorker. How many of you read the, the the New Yorker? Anybody ever read the New Yorker? There's there's a very I think a very good article in the latest New Yorker about um, it's by I think her name's Ariel Levy who wrote it. Um, Ariel is a name I was going to name my one of my daughters, but then then the uh, that movie came out and ruined it. But anyway, um, it, it's about an acquaintance who who lives in who lived in. Uganda and was um, forced to leave. But let me just say that that um, this article, what's so powerful about it is it, it really deeply captures the uh, the difficulty, the nuanced difficulty, the the really the impossibility of solving solving the problems that the people in Uganda are confronted by right now on old patterns of thinking. Um, I, I really think that it might be completely necessary for Jesus to, to turn up in Uganda to, to solve it all, but it'll have to be the real Jesus, not the American one. Now, forgive me for saying that. Uh, that's the one, Renee Bach, yeah. All right, so so let's uh, let's call on the real Jesus to to save us from our trials here, but also to to save the whole Ugandan people. It, it's a desolate, difficult, agonizing place to spend time, in my opinion, for a lot of reasons. Anybody here ever read John Le Carre, a book called the, the Constant Gardener? It just so happens that I started reading that two or three days ago out of curiosity because John Le Carre is supposed to be so good. So great, and it's set in Kenya and has a not altogether different theme going on in it. Well, listen, time's up. This was this was really great fun for me. Um, I, I love it. I love answering your questions because, as I say every time, I hope they're not easy. <laughs> you guys really make me think, and you make me learn. And it's kind of presumptuous, in my opinion, for me to be standing here and talking to you, but if you're foolish enough to listen, then I'm going to keep on talking. And I love, I love this chance to, to just keep learning at your expense. <laughs> the, the, the point of the Russian dolls that I never really got to is that each of them is an analogy of the smaller ones, right? They're proportionately related to each other. And the way I think of it is the biggest ones represent the cosmos and the smallest ones represent the microcosmos. And it's something like the temple, that we live in an analogical universe, analogical. All right, so we'll pursue all of these more.
We will, and bring any questions, Latin, math, grammar, seven liberal arts, science, whatever it is. How do you start a school in Australia? Something like that. <laughs> yeah, sticking my neck out to speak. I've been doing that since uh, grade school, and sometimes I even come back with my head on. <laughs> oh, wow. May the Lord bless you and keep you, especially at this time, and, and, and may the Lord remember you in his beautiful kingdom. Thank you.